Hello, friends. Before we get into our passage today, I want to tell you about some stories I've come across in preparing today's message. And the first is from this journalist named Sebastian Younger, and he talks about this odd phenomenon in early American history. See, in, in the 18th century, up and down the eastern seaboard, basically two groups of people lived side by side. There were the indigenous people living the way they did 15,000 years ago, Stone Age style, and then there were the colonists, mostly British, and they were living at the apex of Western civilization up to that time of learning and medicine and art and literature. But there was a large number of colonists defecting to go live among the indigenous people. And what's interesting about it is it was one-way traffic, and that's what he picks up on. We have no records of the reverse. No indigenous people coming to live with the colonists by their own choice. Even Benjamin Franklin mentioned in a letter to a friend in 1753, he said, there were some former colonists who were captured in a raid, and they were later brought back to the colony. And he said this, Though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they became disgusted with our manner of life and taking first good opportunity of escaping again to the woods. They said, no thanks. I came back here. I'd rather hang out in the woods again. See you later. Or there was another uh, a French immigrant who came. His name was Hector Crovecoeur. Hopefully I got the pronunciation right. And he wrote in a book in 1782. And his language is a bit rough here, but this is hundreds of, years, hundreds of years ago, and I'm sure he would do better if he were alive today. But these thoughts, he said, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even of one of those Aborigines from choice becoming European. And then his interpretation is that there's got to be some social bond or something singularly captivating and far superior to anything boasted of among us. Even back then, in the 1700s, historians had this hunch that there was something new happening in their culture, and not all of it was positive. Uh, there was a, a visitor from France, uh, Alexis de Trocravaille. I totally butchered that pronunciation too. But he toured through the Americas in 1831, and he named extremist individualism as the defining American trait and said if it's left unchecked, it would spell the abolition of humanity. So what he's saying here is individualism's roots. It started in the Enlightenment these roots are growing steadily deeper and stronger into the soil of Western culture. And this is in the 18th century. And it kind of went on like that for, for a long time until World War II in Western culture. And then there's this famous study on the London Blitz done by a Canadian psychologist. So this, this relentless bombing of London in 1940 and 1941 I can't imagine going through that, but it brought people together. In fact, the, the amount of depress, depression, those statistics that they could count, it actually went down. And, and it wasn't because their life was easy. It wasn't because their circumstances were honky-dory. 
it was what they found. It was there was the sense of togetherness. And that makes sense to me. Cities can be a lonely place, especially a city like London in the 1940s with lots of all kinds of different um, people coming through, transient people, move, new people to the city. There wasn't one singular identity. Even, even once you get to London, there was the, the people from the north part of London and the West Enders and South. Like There wasn't this sense of togetherness until they faced hardship together. And the, the, psych, the psychology of it was actually, it had a positive effect on a lot of people, even though there was devastation around them. But then, as a, as a whole, painting with extremely broad strokes, individualism has run wild since then. And you, you get the 50s and, and things start to recover. And then the age of individualism in the 60s and all these rebellions against this or that and the 70s and 80s and 90s to the, to the me focus, the, the I, everything generation. And, and people, our institutions began to crumble and, uh, and, and not as many people. We think about the church since the 1950s. Church attendance has been cut in half, and we could blame secularism. We could blame all these different forces. But when I became uh, when I became an adult and started in youth ministry, I came across this book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. You see, this isn't just happening to church; it's happening to bowling. I mean, bowling used to be a thing. I mean, and, and if you are in a bowling league, good on you. But Robert Putnam's thesis was saying that, that individualism was pulling people apart. And these institutions like bowling leagues, like churches, like Elks Lodges, all these things that took a level of commitment to be a part of, they were crumbling in the late 90s and early 2000s. And what a happy thought. Thank you for worshiping with us today. I'm so glad you came. Don't Okay, we're not going to end that. We're not going to end there. And uh, actually... I wanted to set the stage for, for, for what we've been talking about this month. You don't have to go back and listen to the previous sermons on YouTube or on podcasts, but we've been talking about the antidotes that can be found in the life and teachings of Jesus to, to our anxious world. Uh, there, there are teachings of Jesus and practices that he lived, uh, lived out that are, that are the answer of what so many people in our world are looking for. For the answers to the anger in our world, tribalism, all this, the fracturedness. So today, I just wonder if there's a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth that would, would help out. I wonder if there's anything from Jesus' life that could set up a whole new way of life leading to us flourishing. Well, of course there is. I want to invite you to... to Take in the scripture with me. It's found in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed Jesus. So right here, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is, is pulling together his inner circle. And he says, come follow me. This translated into our culture means, you know, apprentice under me. Walk with me. Live with me. And, and then he uses this play on words, fish for people. 
It was a, a phrase back then of, and also double meaning since they were fishermen. But there was, there was this phrase back then of rabbis who could teach from the scripture in such a way that it would catch, capture the mind and heart and imaginations of everyone who was listening. And Jesus is saying, not only apprentice under me, and I'll make you uh, someone who will fish for people. I learned fishers of men. But he's saying, I'm gonna, I can make you like me if you leave what you're doing and follow me. And the text tells us, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. They did. Don't miss that, that language there. From the start, in Jesus's ministry and his example, community is a big deal. This is something I talk about a lot, but I'm not just talking about community as like, oh, let's just all have warm fuzzies and, and it's this hyper-idealistic thing. Now, as we've been talking about this month, I think biblical community, not just, not just getting in a tribe or a club or a social group it, uh, that, that, that we agree and, and live like and look like and dress like and talk like all the same. But biblical community is what people are looking for these days. And from the start, we see Jesus as he's setting up his, his kingdom here on earth and his community. It's done together. He called, even, even he called these brothers together. He didn't call just one. With these guys, he called them together. And if we turn the page over a couple chapters, Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This response by Jesus is confusing at first a little bit if you're just taking things at face value without the cultural background. But Jesus is, is telling this guy the truth, saying, Following me is going to be hard. Like I, I'm in a communal living situation. I'm going from house to house. I don't even have a place to lay my head. If you're following me, are you sure you really have what it takes? Are you, you know, he's giving this guy an out. And then in verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That's a figure of speech. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person's father was already dead. In the first century, what it meant is, hey, let me go back. My father's still alive. Let me go back until he dies. Then I can collect my inheritance. I can keep things in order, and then I can follow you. And also, it was taboo to leave your family like that. So there was a high level of loss for this person saying, you've caught me. I want to be with you. I want to follow you, but I've got all these uh, cultural obligations, financial obligations, possible financial gain that I can get if I can just follow you on my timeline. And then Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And the, the best part about this, what I love is this inspired author, Matthew, doesn't tell us what happened to these people. I think... He's doing that for even in foresight. So you and I have to ask ourselves, are we committed enough? Will we 
lay everything down and will we follow Jesus above everything else? Because Matthew's point here is that some people, like these brothers, Peter and his, and his brother and James and John, they were ready to give up everything to follow Jesus. And for some, the bar was just too high. If we turn over one chapter into Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, from, we've talked about this passage before, and there's so much in here we could mine it for, for years and not even scratch the surface. But what a chance that this tax collector, Matthew, had to hear Jesus of Nazareth walk right up to him and say, follow me. And just another example. I mean, Jesus is all about breaking these cultural taboos. Jesus is walking up to a collaborator of a Jewish collaborator with the Romans who's selling out his own people. And Jesus is saying, you have what it takes to follow me. Come on. What have you got to lose? And then we, we see in the text that a few, a few uh, lines later, Matthew's throwing a party at his own house. And who else would be at a tax collector's house except other tax collectors and other sinners because they were the outcasts. And I love this, you know, Jesus overhearing what these Pharisees are saying. What a response. In verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That line. But go and learn what this means. That must be like Bible scholar smack talk or something. <laughs> it's a quote from the prophet Hosea. Saying, I deserve, God is saying, I deserve compassion, not sacrifice. And I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Already in the, in, in the book of Hosea, God was showing how he wants to flip this whole thing upside down. I desire compassion, not all these lavish acts of sacrifice that everybody can see. God is calling all of the broken, the hurting, and the sinners, the ones who've missed the mark. And Jesus tells us also that just through these passage, passages that I've read of the different callings of a lot of these disciples, and we're going to get to Judas here in a second, Matthew is telling us that in Jesus' community, there are people all over the place on the maturity spectrum. We've got our, I think of the goody two-shoes, or at least trying to be goody two-shoes. These are Torah-observant the older brother types, you've got James and John and Peter and Andrew, like they're doing as best as they can. And then you've got the tax collector, Matthew. You've got all these folks, and, and Judas is coming here in just a second. But I think Matthew wants us to know that Jesus cares most about the followers' level of commitment more than the maturity. Maturity matters, but Jesus is saying, be with me and I'll take care of that. The maturity comes second. First, I want to know if, will you follow me? Will you trust me? And take a look at this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, 
Jesus called the 12 apprentices to him and gave them notice. Not just gave Peter, but gave them as a community authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. Them. Them. And then it goes on in verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, always got to put that in there, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So there's a lot of different ways you can go with, with just this list of names, given their background and all the different kind of things going on in the first century, but the most fun to pick on is these two people, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector. Talk about polar opposites on the political spectrum. Spending seven days a week, 24 hours a day with Jesus and with each other. Just, I mean, this might be a bit goofy, but... I think this is real, like where the real blood and sweat and guts of the text come out. Imagine coffee with these two guys in the morning. Matthew walks in. Simon goes, good morning, traitor. Simon goes, oh, well, hello, murderer. Like every, imagine their conversation around the campfire, walking along for three years. And like I said, there's a, there's a lot of, of those that you can pit against each other. In the story. But Jesus, it's like, hey, you guys are gonna be all over all over the map. What matters is what you say about me. Jesus is bigger than than their than their preferences, their jobs, their socioeconomic level, their their ideologies. Jesus said, Follow me. I'm gonna bring everybody together. And then we have this story. Talk about a maturity spectrum. In Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20, just check this out. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus, and with her sons kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. What is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers, and Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. What a scene here. You have the sons of Zebedee with their mommy, Coming up, and what a dramatic show. They get on their knees, and the mom is asking, basically, as she's putting things together, I think Jesus is the Messiah. He's going. He's setting up his community, so he's setting up his new kingdom, and so he's probably about to muster an army and kick Rome out of here. So in her, in her thinking, it would be similar to us having 
a mommy say, hey, can this son be your vice president and the other son be your secretary of state? And Jesus is so nice. That's how I read it, saying, oh, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink from my cup? And Jesus often uses this this image of drinking from the cup of his kind of leadership, which for him is suffering love. And both of these guys, history tells us that they did die for their love of Jesus. But one thing that's that in this community and reading through this lens of community that I that I've missed up until now and just blown right past it. This was a scheme. Zebedee, the brothers of Zebedee and their mommy came up to Jesus and the other 10 guys weren't around. Can you imagine when the other 10 heard? It tells us when the other 10 heard. (laughs) Peter's basically saying, "Uh, guys, seriously? You had your mom ask Jesus that favor for you? You're not even man enough to go and ask Jesus? I mean, you guys have been with him. But that's why Jesus had to explain what leadership looked like in his kingdom. He's saying, hey, guys, guys, it's not this upward mobility and who, who, the point isn't who sits at the right and left. Ambition is great. I want you to be the greatest, but in my kingdom and the thing that I'm setting up here, go for it with your ambition. But here's what it looks like. If you want to be the greatest, serve the most. It's, it's not about more popularity. It's not about an easy life. It's, it's about putting others first. And all, th- all three of these, uh, four of these stories that we've been reading. I've got some observations for us to go through when it comes to community. Because as we see around us, we have people who are more connected than ever, but more lonely than ever. We have people with more relationships than ever, but who feel more isolated than ever. And taking, taking all this in of how Jesus put his community together, who he brought into his community, and him saying, this is how you live in community and you lead it and organize it through servant leadership, suffering love. So the first observation for us and implication for us is Jesus lived in community. We say that and, and I've heard this a lot. Like we can't follow Jesus alone. And so many times I've thought, oh, that's, that's good, that's good. But Do we live in community? So much of our culture is designed to keep us isolated. And when we're not truly connected to others, when we're not truly living in community, we're we're cutting ourselves off from seeing this whole avenue of of a way where Jesus can transform us into into something like him. if Jesus did it, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's, it's good enough for us. And we'll, we're, we can take a long time and we'll keep coming back to this to unpack what that means. But we can't follow Jesus alone. And, and for Jesus, here's another way to say it. For Jesus, connected doesn't mean community. I have a friend that I talk to on a weekly basis. Sometimes it's every day. And he's like a a big brother to me. I met him in college. Yes, I still have a college friend. His name's Andreas. And he lives just outside of Gothenburg, Sweden. We send messages. It's almost like this video walkie-talkie. Great friend of mine. Like a big brother that I always wanted. But I'm very careful to say he's not in my community. He's a friend of mine. A deep friend. The best kind of friend. But we're not together every single day. 
we're super connected, but that doesn't mean he's in my community. Okay, number two, this biblical community. The word for it is koinonia. So why don't you try it? It's the Greek word, koinonia. That was pretty good. So community, this togetherness, and and different translations have have the community, have the fellowship, uh, as as this translation of the word koinonia. And so in biblical community, it's not just people who are think like you and act like you and dress like you. It's actually whoever's around you. You know, I, I drive some of the folks at Solid Ground crazy because I like the, the, the music group U2 and they just can't stand U2. And that's okay. And that's actually really good for us to get to know each other because I've learned a little bit more about some of their, their music and they're, they're, well, they're kind and, and they put up with me. And that's just a silly example of, of what it looks like to, to actually be with people. What good is it that you love someone who's just like you? Like we need people to challenge us. Like the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. Um, and you know, this is one of the big lessons that I've learned about community in the past few years. Um, we had all kinds of connections right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. We, had, we, were, we were online real quick and we had all kinds of Zoom things and they're wonderful and I'm grateful that we had at least something. But for me, biblical community has to be people who you are around face-to-face. There's zero substitute for a face-to-face interaction. There's zero substitute for, for living almost on a daily basis with people. And there is a rhythm in Jesus' life. Yes, he did go off to pray alone. Yes, he had periods of silence and solitude. That is great, but he always came back. There was a, there was a, a, a rhythm to it. So for me, there's no, no substitution for a face-to-face community. And I'm so glad for those of you who watch from all over the place, but as a pastor, I want to, you, and if you need help with this, please let us know. I want you to be involved in a Jesus-loving, Jesus-centered community with real live people. You're missing out if you don't have that in your life. And some, some biblical scholars, like Scott McKnight, they say that the kingdom of God and the community of Jesus are actually the same thing. And you can make a strong case that of all the practices that we can get from Jesus's life, the two most important practices are silence and solitude and then community because they're the two containers that hold every other practice. So uh, I think for me, the biggest spiritual breakthroughs happen in those containers. It's either in times of isolation where I've really heard from God or I felt Jesus' presence, but more often than not, Jesus has worked on my heart and my attitude via the buttons that get pushed by other people that live in my life. And I'm in a certain stage of, you know, my my kids are a little bit older. I'm headed towards 50. And I'm in the stage of my apprenticeship with Jesus that that most of the sins that I have to repent for, and well, you have to repent of all your sins. Most of the sins that I commit are actually with my mouth. Hurtful things that I say to my wife, hurtful things that I say to my kids. Not every day, but it's just that 
they're close and they see the real me. It's easy to be nice and keep up a, a, a good behavior with people that are new to you or with people that you only see at Thanksgiving and Christmas or a couple times a year. But this is where in my community, this family that I see every day, the people in our church community that I see almost every day or on a weekly basis where I let it hang out and this is me and my buttons get pushed and oh, oh, Mike's still working on his temper. Oh, that's a button Mike needs to surrender to God. So this is a huge, not just for us to have people in our life, but it's a tool that God uses to make us more like Jesus. Huge leap for us when I think of uh, how committed we are to community. And I'm in a phenomenal life group here at Solid Ground Church. And it has other families in it, other kids that are my kids' ages, uh, all in similar kind of, uh, we, uh, I don't know, uh, we, there's an affinity. We're connected. But I was thinking even for us, it's a huge commitment to even meet every other week because everyone's lives are so busy and we're going in so many different directions. And it's hard to commit to living in community. And the individual in us, we don't want to commit to, ooh, hey, I, these are the people, I'm going to meet with them once a week. It's hard to say, no, this is such a big deal. The lessons can wait. The, the, the other stuff that comes out or the fun stuff that pops up. And it, it always does pop up. I've been, I've been asking myself some serious questions. Like, how, what does it look like to be committed to a community? What does it look like to live in community? And when I do, the little individualist in, in, in my mind and in my heart pops up and says, hey, you can get close, but not that close. And I realize when we invite people to life groups, when we invite people to these different things that we do outside of Sunday mornings, I know it's a really big leap. But this year, I want us to take some baby steps and experiment. We don't have to do it perfectly. Let's take some baby steps towards living in community more deeply this year. And, and number three, third observation from these passages is that, that when it comes to community, we have these ideals of what it should look like, and then there's the reality. You know, there's the ideals of our life, whether you're pro-community and you just think everyone's going to hold everything in common and everyone will just live in this magical utopia, or some of us have felt the reality of real community and living with people in your neighborhood, living closely with, with an extended family maybe, depending on your, maybe you come from a big family that's always together. You know, it's messy. Community isn't easy. And I've touched on this before, but the people, they see the real you hang out. I heard, uh, I heard one person say, if you, wanna, if you wanna learn how to love other people, start with a stranger. Don't start with your mom and don't start with your spouse. I was like, oh, I like the realism in that. If you want to learn how to, to love other people, pick someone who are on the other side of the office and show kindness to them. And, uh, and then, because they don't know all your faults altogether, all, all at the same time. So I've got a real quick challenge for you. And whatever, wherever you fall on this end of the spectrum, this week, I want you to take the next step 
towards living in community on purpose. For some of you, that may look like signing up for a life group here at Solid Ground Church. For some of you, that might look like finding a real in-person church to engage with. And like I said before, if you need help with that, reach out to us and we'll, we'll help you find the right fit for you. Reach out in the comments or direct message or, or email us at the office and we'll find the right fit for you. But this is where I believe God is calling us to, to go as a, as a community and, and as a church so that we can be a bright shining light that contrasts the kind of false communities that you can find out in our culture the tribalism, the anger, the, the us versus them, and a community that says, hey, there's something much bigger that pulls us together, and that's Jesus Christ. So until we're together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.